0: This is the G podcast where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom and our future and everything else. This is the G podcast. Tonight we are live and we are featuring Lawrence Watkins. We getting right to it. Y'all already know what it is. This is the G Sh podcast where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom, and our future and f- everything else. This is the G Sh podcast, and we got Lawrence Watkins in the building. Give it up one more time. Appreciate you joining, big homie. Hey,
1: I'm very happy to be here. Uh, appreciate. I love that introduction in <laughs> that model that you have uh, opened up your show that's uh that's a a, a good model to live by
0: I appreciate that I appreciate that um we, we're gonna get right into this discussion I, I value this gentleman's time uh we we actually cross paths once randomly and th- this is also just the power I think of what we're going to continue to talk about too just networking meeting people because I was living in Amsterdam my wife and I, and all of a sudden we, we had a gathering on that night and she mentioned that this guy named Lawrence would be coming through with his wife and they were in town from Amsterdam, right? I'm just curious, Lawrence, just from from your point of view, for, for everybody listening, like how did you end up at my house that night in Amsterdam, if you even remember?
1: Um, I don't fully remember, but I do know that it was during the year that me and my wife uh, it was at that time this is i guess must have been like 2016 or so uh me and my wife had only been married for about a year or so right maybe in 2017. uh she had quit her corporate job uh, actually government job uh, as an engineer, and we decided to um, just put everything in storage and travel travel throughout Europe and South America for one year. And we were at like the tours, the end of that particular trip. And I just remember maybe posting on Facebook, maybe some funny story about my wife or by myself in terms of just being in Amsterdam, you know, loving life. And then your wife hit me up. Uh, I don't know if you say her name on the, on the podcast or not, but yeah, yeah she yeah, hit she, me up. She,
0: she's gonna be on next week. Spoiler alert: she's gonna be oh, okay, on live next go. week.
1: <laughs> so Carmika yeah, hit
0: ahead. me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So she hit me up. It was like,
1: hey, well, you know, you know, me and my husband live here in Amsterdam. I was like, what? And I was like, all right, well, let's just you know, definitely link up. And uh that was definitely a memorable, memorable experience. I remember your home being very beautiful um, in Amsterdam and a lot of beautiful people, beautiful friends that you know surrounded you at the same time.
0: Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. And that was that was my first time getting introduced to you. So I'm looking forward just to learning a little bit more about like your background, how you were brought up, especially given you know what you do today and having that entrepreneurial background. I really am curious, like from a from a household perspective, where both parents in the household? And, and how would you describe like where you were born and raised? You know, I was
1: born into a solidly middle-class Black family, suburban in Louisville, Kentucky. Right. Um, I think a lot of times people just make assumptions in regards to you know, how one was brought up, um, what their background was like, that type of thing. But uh, I grew up with two loving parents. Um, they loved me to death. Uh, my dad was a high-ranking police official in Louisville. Uh, my mom was a high school counselor, and just through those experiences and just the love that they showed me between, I guess, my parents and myself, but then also just the extended family too, my grandparents, uh, my cousins, I have a lot of cousins as well, Um, grew up in a very loving, caring environment that supported one another, and that's something that as I think about the next generation is, uh, you know, a thing uh, that I want to provide for my children as well.
0: Okay. Okay. And you said you, you, you were born in Louisville. Did you like, were you born and raised there through your high school years or, or like how much time did you spend growing up in Louisville? Yeah. The
1: first 22 years of my life are spent in Louisville. Um, so after college, I realized even before that, of course, when I was growing up, people knew that I was good in math and science and kind of funneled me towards that track. And uh, after high school, I decided to attend engineering school at the University of Louisville. It's called oh, okay. the State School of Engineering. Um, got my degree in electrical engineering. Um, but throughout the course of getting my degree, I realized that electrical engineering wasn't for me. So I did a couple of internships, actually three um, at Ford Motor Company. Um, and I remember. So there's this big Ford plant in Kentucky called the Kentucky truck plant. It's miles and miles long miles and miles deep at the time it was one of the largest manufacturing facilities in the nation definitely car manufacturing facilities in the nation and however grateful i was for the opportunity i hated smelling paint fumes every day because i worked you know two semesters in the uh in the the paint department um i had to wear these like these overalls like you know i was (laughs) you know working working at the jiffy lube up the street or whatever it might have been And then one semester, I was actually in the body shop making F-250, F-350 trucks. But my job, so two things. One, you would go down to the floor, and all these robots, (laughs) just lines and lines of robots. And sparks would just fly all over the place. And I remember just always coming home with burn holes in my shirts because of all the sparks actually flying. And then um, as an intern, they gave me like the most boring job ever. Basically, for eight hours a day, my job was to go down to to the line and color. right. So my job was to look at each robot and double check that that specific robot was making the proper welds on the actual on the actual vehicle. So it was like very extremely tedious work that I actually had to do. And I I say to this day that I must have been like the worst employee in Ford Motor Company history, um, because that was a job that I was not passionate about and I did not want to do. But, you know, I still thank them to this day for this opportunity. And actually, that was a good guidepost and a good point to show me. What Well, sometimes knowing what you don't want to do with your life, it's just as good as knowing what you do want to do. So I can rule that off the list. Like, I do not want to work in a manufacturing facility um, making cars. So... <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Um, decided to go like I guess a different path
0: um, after college. So you 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 originally pursued? Did you say electrical engineering? I'm double
1: so E. My background is in double E, so I was an electrical engineer.
0: Oh, so, okay. You're you're growing up. Like, what is it about growing up that said, yo, I, I, I'm gonna go to school and, and major in electrical engineering? Like, I'm even curious. Like, from from a household perspective, was was college like uh, an expectation? uh was it uh something that you, you you were like one of the first to do like i'm curious like how, how did you get it get to just the thought of majoring in e- electrical engineering
1: uh so i would say college was an expectation um so that's the first thing so even though i'm i don't I'm, i guess i'm technically second generation college but my parents went to community college first and then had a long road to get their actual degree you know criminal justice and edu- or education with my mom uh but my brother by this time. Uh, was working on his PhD right and my sister was I believe in medical school um, you know when I was on my way to college right so college wasn't something that was foreign to our family and then my cousins went and graduated so it wasn't something that just no one even heard about or anything like that I mean was struggling to try to try to like succeed in but it was a well-beaten well-worn path by this point Um, also I had a lot of college prep in high school so When I was in high school, I did a program that really changed my life. It was called Math and Science for Minority Students, MS squared. And basically, they sent you for three um, summers, uh, for six weeks each summer, to Phillips Academy at Andover, Massachusetts, which is the highest ranking or the most prestigious boarding school in the country. So for there, or, or every summer there for five hours, every single day, I would study math and science. Right. Yeah. So in terms of just like having a leg up when it comes to succeeding in school, I've always kind of had that. It was something really preached to us um, growing up as a family. So even though my parents didn't always necessarily know how to do it um, themselves, uh, they were able to provide me uh, the right guideposts and the resources to actually make that happen.
0: Okay. Okay. Very nice. Very nice. I guess I got one more question about because what, what I know about Louisville is Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. and... I'm not, I never been to Kentucky, but I do enjoy bourbon. So, I, you know, so I got, I got just two questions. Like, I'm, I'm curious, like just, and also too, growing up in North Carolina, I feel like Kentucky is even way more racist. I don't know if that's just bias. I don't know if that's yeah. like irrational, but I'm just curious, like, how would you just describe your experience growing up in Louisville, especially given like the the, the, the fact that someone like Muhammad, that, that's Muhammad Ali's hometown and, and it has a certain, I think, uh, maybe perception when you grow up outside of that city?
1: I think that's always the, the ambiance or I guess the, the spirit of Ali. Um, It's all around, or at least when I was growing up, because Ali wasn't just a figure there are people in our family um, extended who you know, knew who Muhammad Ali was like the age difference between uh, my grandmother on my mom's side and Muhammad Ali is like very, very small. So from that perspective, you know, they knew him before he became a mega famous superstar. That was the icon, the sports icon around the globe. Right. Uh, but I think as a city, we take it as a uh, source of pride and strength that someone like Ali came out of Louisville. And also just the fact that if Ali could, Come out of Louisville and do something great. I know that I can too, right? So that definitely was the mindset that we had. Um, and for Black people specifically, you know, he was definitely a cultural, um, a cultural icon for the city in general, but especially for Black people in the city. Ali, of course, is a, de- a definitely a cultural icon. And one thing I always loved about, loved about Ali. Is that no matter how famous he became, he always took it back to being from Louisville, Kentucky, right? If you watch his post game, um, his, or not post game, post fight interviews, like that type of thing. Um, when he had his fight against Fore- Foreman, George Foreman, the same thing, you know, the first in Zaire, he was talking about that in regards to like, I want to thank my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville's the greatest, all those different types of things. And uh, that's always something I've kind of taken it with me in terms of me, what I do now and just what I do in general is try to uh, promote Louisville as much as possible um, because I love the city. And
0: uh, from a from a bourbon perspective, are you a fan? Is it is it just you have to be like I'm just curious, like, is, is it or, or being from there? It's just kind of like uh...
1: people love their bourbon in Kentucky and Louisville and uh, they use it as a you know source of like things to talk about within the city. I don't drink alcohol, so. <laughs> so so for me it was like yeah, we're known for bourbon. Um, I know which friends to point you to. Um, if you you ever wanted to, uh, you know, go deeper on, on on that pathway in terms of doing bourbon tours and that type of stuff in in, in the city. Uh, but myself, you know, that was never uh you know never something that I got into. Although my wife does love you no know, bourbon, she loves whiskey. Um, but I just you know I just I don't drink.
0: Got it. Got it. I'm curious if you if you go to school for electrical engineering, like at what point did the entrepreneur itch start? Because I think, you know, you know, like I'm I'm hearing you say you grew up in a household. uh, Like, what did your parents have side hustles as entrepreneurs growing up? Like, at what point did the idea of like, you know what, I need to kind of kind of do something a little different here, really start to creep in?
1: You know, I think it was always innate in me. In terms of just who I was temperament wise and just also personality wise and even identity wise when I was very young. Right. So I remember this is, you know, the mid 90s at the height of, you know, Michael Jordan um, and, you know winning championships and that type of thing. I remember just always going out and playing ball in the neighborhood with my friends and everybody like, oh, man, I'm going to be Jordan. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. And for some reason, I just had always pictured me being the owner of the team. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Uh, I really, to this day, don't know like where that idea came from, or where I even learned about, you know, what ownership actually was, right? But um, I had just wanted to be the owner of the team, and uh, and I, I took it very seriously uh, from like an identity standpoint. So uh, I also remember. In high school, I always had an entrepreneurial spirit too. I remember, you know, being the first kid uh, on the bus that had like a CD burner. So uh, I would burn you know CDs for mixtapes for all the kids on the bus and charge whatever the going price was, two, three dollars at the time, uh, to be able to, you know, burn people's you know, favorite CDs and that type of stuff. So although highly illegal nowadays, right? <laughs> well not highly mildly illegal, I should say, uh, but if you have the music industry, highly illegal, right? Um, I was able to do that and that's something I enjoy doing. I remember being in 10th grade in biology class. We were allowed to have one cheat sheet note card um, that was like two sided um, where you could take into your test to remember, you know, osmosis or whatever, um, photosynthesis or whatever, you know, terminology that we needed, you know, for the actual test. And I remember mass for produ- mass producing those note cards for all 30 kids in the class and, and selling them, right? And it's just something that I really enjoyed doing. And uh, it was, you know, a passion of mine was, you know, figuring out, you know, different ways to make money and making sure my ideas actually worked. It was through that experience that I remember to uh, always get paid in advance, you know, st- you know, people bad credit because some of the kids. <laughs> it would take my note card and use them, then pay me. So that was one of the first <laughs> earlier uh experiences that I learned in terms of uh, you know that lesson.
0: You know, so not only did you have the entrepreneurial spirit early on, you were still focused on uplifting the community. Shout out yeah, to right. that, you. Gotta- <laughs> <laughs> we oh, got to shout funny. that out man we sh- shout out to people like you who help people like me get through public school through k yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's so necessary it's it's wow man shout out again man <laughs> and, and so it's so, okay that's that's here okay so i'm i'm hearing that you always sort of had to, it you you ended up going back to school and and I'm, I guess my question is like, what made you say go back to school versus do something else at that time? You, you, if you had the experience as an intern, you have this natural itch, but like, what made you say, you know what, let me go back to grad school. And why did you end up going back for for the program you chose?
1: Well, you know, there was some time in between that of about, I think, two years or so. Uh, so during my senior year of college, my last year of college, I actually spent five years in undergrad uh, because I did some additional programs, summer programs, some other types of things in those internships as well. Yeah. I had already made the decision that like my my interest lied somewhere else. Right. So me finishing my, my engineering degree was because, well, by the time I figured out that I was already three years in, I'm still doing pretty good at it. So minus was just finished getting this degree, this stamp of approval to say I can do this base level work uh, from like an income generating type of you know standpoint. Uh, but I had also run for student government president while I was in, in, in college, for example, uh, just because I wanted to improve my speaking, uh, my public speaking and leadership skills. I had already started working with my brother, uh, Dr. Boyce Watkins. So who had just started as a professor mm-hmm. at Syracuse. Uh so I helped him, you know, promote uh his books at the time and you know, doing some media types of you know type of things just very, very broadly um at that particular moment. Uh and it was him who floated the idea that, you know, he, you know, I think we were on the call, we talked, you know, really, you know, really often. And uh he said, Hey man, why don't you just you know turn down your engineering jobs and come move to Syracuse with me? Um, and you know, help me out and build my business. Right. That's interesting because I've always known that I want to be an entrepreneur in some form or fashion. And my thought process when making that decision was that, well, I'm broke now. You know, what's being broke in another couple of years if things don't work out? Right, mm-hmm. but if they do work out, uh, this could be something that could drastically benefit my life for the better. I took that leap of faith. Uh, so this is back in two thousand five, two thousand six area. I, I, took, I took that leap of faith, and you know, my parents were you know, extremely mad. You know, they weren't just mad at me; uh, they were mildly mad at me. They were like really mad at my brother, since he's you know twelve years my senior. like you're supposed to be the big brother, you know, teaching him, to you no know, be on the guided path in terms of doing you know the right things, whatever. You got him ruining his career, you know, moving to Sy- you know moving to Syracuse, but they had thought Syracuse was like New York City. And it's not the opposite. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you move into this big city. Right. And uh, they just didn't really understand. And, you know, I had been exposed to more by that period of time. So I had known was, you know, was out there a little bit more. And it was like, well, you know, I can always go back to engineering if things don't work out. But when am I ever going to have
0: like this little responsibility in my life? And uh,
1: I'm glad I did. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made.
0: Yeah, that's you know, that's that's that's. You know, that's that's great to hear that you had like a a sibling that was willing to say reach back and say, like, how about we try this? But like, can you talk about that dynamic of having parents who have a certain vision and then you going against that grain? Like, you know, like I'm curious, like, did you suffer any consequences like no mac and cheese for Thanksgiving or anything of the sort because you didn't? because you chose a different path at the beginning.
1: Man, I feel very blessed in that regard where you know we have a tight knit family. And even though even though they didn't understand my decision in terms of why I would do something like that, they still respected it, right? So there was no grudges held, no less mac and cheese for Thanksgiving, <laughs> nothing like that, right? It was more probably me being like really afraid. Yeah, so it was really me, let me start this now, uh, being really afraid. Uh, of what they were going to say, what were they going to think. What if this failed, Um, this big business venture that we have? What if what if it failed? What were we going to do on that particular front? Yeah, but no, uh, they've always been supportive. Like, even though they were mad at the time, they got over it. They said, you're a man, you make your own decisions. And they treated me like their son. Like they
0: had always treated me. Very nice. You go to Syracuse. Is that when you go back to grad school after you sort of have a vision of what the next phase will be? And then you said grad school is a good compliment or like.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, I did a program called uh, Management Leadership for Tomorrow MLT. Uh, when After I ended up or after I, uh, I finished undergrad, I did that program to get me into help me get into a good business school. Um, after that, I had learned about the program. Uh Another program I did in college called uh, SVMP, so Summer Venture and Management Program, where they send you to Harvard Business School for a week, you know, teach you the case study method. Um, That's how they teach their courses, you know, have professors come in just show you what being a, a Harvard Business School student, that type of thing. And a lot of those kids, there were actually in MLT, the undergraduate version of it. So it was through that experience that I learned that this next program existed. And, you know, looking back on that now, there's definitely a pattern that actually happens on that particular front. There's this, like, secret pipeline. I don't know if it's secret, but this pipeline, like, the, the, the power of pipelines, right? So once you get into one pipeline, it leads to the next opportunity, which leads to the next opportunity. And sooner or later, you have to put in the work kind of, right? Right. But then a lot of things have already been kind of predetermined in terms of your pathway, if you want it to be, um, to, 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 to like the good life. <laughs> if, as long as you just kind of do what you know, people tell you to do um, and you know finish the program and do the next thing. Um, I think we need more of those those types of pipelines out here for like black kids um, who are just doing the right things. They just don't know how to get from one step to the next, um, because I guarantee you some of these you know, rich white kids that I interact with, wealthy white kids. And the wealthy white people, um, they are up on game with those unofficial pipelines. They may not have an official one, but their dinner table serves as the pipeline. You know, Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner serves as those types of pipelines. Um, it's a good way for us to have you no know, those you no know, those you no know, similar types of networks.
0: It's and I appreciate you sharing the names of these programs because you know, I've talked on prior episodes just about how that that growing up say before like the age of 21 a lot of your experience is based off of things largely out of your control because of your environment your 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 family uh you don't necessarily get to control the neighborhoods you live in and the access to the resources you have like i'm curious from from your perspective like how do we uh, help people get access to those opportunities to to get into those pipelines that, that that you're speaking of like what do you think is really like a key thing preventing us from getting access to those sort of programs and opportunities?
1: I think there's two things, maybe three. So one is knowing
0: about them, right? You'll be surprised even like working
1: for, you know, what I work for now, what I do here. We have a lot of just different programs, other things that are out here, some that I know about, some that I just don't know about. They have a hard time getting people into the programs because it's they have a hard time marketing the programs. They don't know where to go market, where to find these kids, where to find these adults to actually take advantage of these particular types of opportunities. Um, so I would say, like, that's the first step. This is awareness and making these programs and making these things extremely aware. But I think there's a, another step that's in there. I'm, I'm going off the fly because I hadn't really thought about this question before. Um, I would say the second thing would be once the awareness has been established, making people to actually believe that the program is for them, Um, because a lot of times we self-select out of stuff. Right. So there's things that we might actually qualify for um, and we may not even actually fully qualify for. Right. Uh, but we say, ah, that's not for me. I don't know about that. Uh, when it's better just to apply and let them tell you no, I um, mean, you not tell yourself no. Right. And I even have to remind myself that, you know, Nowadays, when I think about my next career, my next career moves, my next steps. No, I'm going to apply for everything that I think I could potentially be a fit for. And then let them tell me no on that front. And then I think the third piece is developing like a making sure that people have like a base level knowledge and skill set to actually be successful in those programs and those things once once they actually get in. How do you continue to to increase skill development um, to make sure that people once they are provided with opportunity, once they believe they have the opportunity, actually have the skill set necessary to actually achieve in that particular op- opportunity as well.
0: OK, got it. Got it. Like, I, I appreciate you because these programs, to me, at least growing up, like I like a lot of stuff was in my backyard and I didn't even know what it was. You know, I grew up in Durham, but didn't really understand what Research Triangle Park was, even though mm-hmm. people outside of North Carolina know what Research Triangle Park is. There's people growing up here who don't even realize what's right in their backyard and so I appreciate you sharing your point of view on that you you're 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 in that Syracuse area you're going through your program you're starting to get into these different networks that's opening up these opportunities like as an entrepreneur like what for you like what do you feel like was the toughest thing to figure out early that if you could go back and tell yourself now like it would have really helped get you to the next level
1: Man, that's a hard question because my mindset today is very different than my mindset back in 2007 when I started my first company, right? Um, So the first company that I actually started was called Great Black Speakers, and it was a direct outgrowth of the work that I did with my brother, helping him to get on national media in terms of national media appearances and to help him get speaking engagements at universities, right? So I did that very, very well. Right. And I remember because I didn't know very much about business up until this point, especially how to be an entrepreneur um, or you run a business. I had a lot of like self-study to do. So I remember uh, waking up in the morning, testing something, reviewing in the afternoon, in the evening time. Reading at night, thinking through what I was going to test tomorrow and doing the exact same thing over and over and over again till I became really good at helping boys voice- to get speaking engagements, <laughs> basically. And mm-hmm. in, 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 in do media. Um, after getting him like twelve or thirteen of these things, he said, Man, you're doing really good at this. Well, have you ever thought about like, you know, starting something on your own? Like maybe calling even like Great Black Speakers or something like that, right? I don't think he said the name at the point, but he was like doing something for like Black Speakers in the college market. Um, And I think BlackSpeakers.com was taken, so he we wanted Great Black Speakers. And, you know, it was through that particular experience, he was right, that I started my first company in 2007, where we helped African-Americans to... Uh, um, so what we did was help African Americans organizations to find African American public speakers for their p- particular events. Excuse me, I haven't pitched it in quite a while. <laughs> I was getting my pictures mixed up. Like, no, that's not the
0: right one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Entrepreneurial been- problems.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. I had to, you know, go back into the vault, you know, for the great black speakers. Um, but I remember running it as a business to serve me and my potential, my 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 particular needs. Mm. Um, it was at the time that a really popular book. Came out called The Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. So uh, t- four-hour work week basically taught you how to create a lifestyle business to, to serve you. Right. And that book came out maybe like two months after I started, you know, full-time, you know, running great black speakers. So it was like my Bible on that particular front in terms of how I live my life, right? In terms of outsourcing everything, trying to do as little work as possible. So I have as much as free time as possible. Don't necessarily stress yourself out too much, go out and live life, that type of stuff. And I'm glad I did it that way because I got to do a lot of things. I traveled the world. Um, I didn't have to work very much. You know, I had this you know income generating machine. Even though it wasn't a lot of income, I didn't have to really work too hard to actually achieve that level of income. And I'm getting back to your question in terms of what I would tell myself in the past um, or tell myself from the past. I probably should have worked harder during mm. my 20s than I actually did. Actually, being someone who's 39, about to be 40 this year with two kids now, I wish I would have worked harder in my 20s and been more disciplined day in and day out with my work because all the stuff that was fun. I'm glad that I did it. I'm glad I got to live in different countries and travel and you know, do all this you know, cool stuff. And I wouldn't trade that. But I would have worked harder on my business to have something even more, you know, sustainable. Yeah, even more sustainable, like long term.
0: I, w- I wish I would have done that. You know, I think that's a. I appreciate you sharing that because I think that's a a pretty common theme when when mm. we look back. Say, because I'm 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 36. When I look back at where, what I'm doing currently versus what I did in my 20s, like man, I left a lot of meat on the bone. If you will. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. uh it was just young, naive, unexposed, ignorant, hard headed, uh, stubborn to a large degree. And I had to get out of my own way, in my uh, in my opinion, and looking back. Was once I got out of my own way, life started really to to change differently for me. You know, I appreciate you talking about like if you could go back, you would you would you would work harder because there are people listening who who Potentially, like the difference is is that you're not putting in what you need to put in at a given moment. And and people who 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 reach certain levels of success, like you don't know how many hours they spend obsessing over getting to that point and, and, and the commitment that that went in, you know, behind closed doors. I appreciate you you sharing that thought. When we talk about this idea of entrepreneurship, given what you do now, working, you know, to find certain entrepreneurs, I guess you 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 were doing the entrepreneur thing. I'm curious, like, what have you found to be the most like personally the, the the most challenging piece of, say, working for yourself versus say, working for someone else?
1: The most challenging piece with working for yourself, I'm going to say is making sure that you work for yourself harder than you work for other people. Yeah, because you don't have anyone breathing down your neck telling you to get this thing done. You got to do that yourself. Right. And I think a lot of times if when we're all, when we are our own boss, we don't work nearly as hard causes us to not have the same level of impact and same outcomes as others um uh, when it comes when it comes to you know growing successful large large scale types of companies. Yeah. So that, that was that was the hard that's the hardest thing. Waking up every day um and working for myself just as hard as I work for someone else or harder.
0: Okay. And let me ask you this, too, because at some point you, you met someone who you married when you when you when you met your your wife. How did that change how you pursued your entrepreneurial efforts?
1: I don't know if it changed it too much. I found myself explaining what an entrepreneur entrepreneur does way more. Um, So I had to consider like that and consider. Yeah, I don't know if I'm getting married and meeting my wife is what changed things. It was probably the kids piece. <laughs> like, yeah, the kids pieces went really changed things. Um, like getting married because after we were married, and we we traveled to Europe and South America for a year, right? As with me as an entrepreneur and her running her own business too, right? Mm-hmm. So we still did a lot. So I kind of me and my family recruited her to the entrepreneurial space and converted her on you know, on that particular front, right? Um, so. I don't know if much change change from my perspective in terms of that but doing time management and thinking about what changes when you have children and this other priority that's even higher than like fulfilling your goal as an entrepreneur in terms of what you want to accomplish in this world you know that was the the real game changer
0: in life how long were you and your wife married before you had your first child
1: let's see three years three and a half
0: what was like the biggest sort of like because i've talked to a couple parents on the podcast and, and I always like to tease parents for certain just, just because like the reality is you have these kids and I and I know when you as a couple have kids, nothing is the same. I'm curious, like what really say for you as a husband changed that you maybe didn't like really think or, or, or anticipate once the kid arrived, how much you love them.
1: <laughs> yeah, like that that was a big thing for me is not having experienced that type of love before, that that raw sense of emotion on that level, right? Um, because Romantic love, some form of fashion, you've experienced that you're you're in your your life starting age twelve. I don't know with some some younger age you had a crush on somebody or whatever, right? Now the intensity of it, you know, varies in terms of what it actually looks like, but you've kind of been experiencing that, you know, throughout throughout life. But when you have a child, that's something that's an emotion that you've never, you know, really experienced before. And when you think about like this idea of like creation. Right of of an actual person, this like being that you created, and then this woman that helped you know create this this being and did all the, basically most of the work in terms of carrying it and you know getting it you know to this world that you know a lot of times looks like you. In my case, it did. Right that you just love. You hear a cry. You know that was the most joyful moment of my life. Was you know when my, when my daughter was born, and then subsequently when my my son was born. Those definitely the two happiest moments moments of my life. Right. Mm-hmm. So just that level of joy that comes with being like a parent. And like that level of love that you didn't know that you had for someone else. It's something that I could never explain beforehand. And I wouldn't even try to explain, you know, in terms of what it, what it, what it feels like, because I remember having that same feeling like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm gonna love this. But, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. But then, like, you hear the heartbeat for the first time, you know, in the doctor, then you, you know, you hear them cry for the first time. And then now it's just, it's, you know, you got these two being I have these two beings here that I just love beyond anything you know, ever. Yeah. So that's that's like emotionally the biggest change ever that has ever occurred.
0: You 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 but you did mention the kids is sort of what made you pivot back or pivot sort of your 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 how you were making money for the household. You started to think about like big bigger picture maybe, or just a different perspective on life now that you have different responsibilities. How did you fall into this investment sort of Opportunity, um, given that you had the background, living the entrepreneurial life with the travel, how, how did you end up getting to a point where you said, you know, I think this makes sense for me?
1: So we were living overseas for, even though we traveled for a year, we settled in Medellin, Colombia. So we were in Medellin for four years, and our children were actually born in Medellin. Right, mm. so they're dual citizens between the United States and Medellin. And I had thought, I thought we were, I was going to be in Medellin for many, many years to come. Uh, But then COVID happened. (laughs) Mm. Uh, And then my dad got sick too. Mm. He was overcoming, you know, know, he was battling prostate cancer or whatever, right? So it was a combination of COVID, my parents getting older and and Carlos, my wife's parents getting older and then having like these new children. I wanted my, like more, what I love more than Medellin was the idea of my kids knowing their grandparents, Mm -hmm. right? So it was with that, that we decided to move from, it was with that that we decided to move from, what's it called, from uh, Medellin back to Texas um, to be closer to family, that type of thing, right? I would also say that in my latest um, business, My brother called the Black Business School that we started about six years ago. We did we've done really well with that. We've bootstrapped that. So what we do is help African Americans to obtain a culturally relevant yet practical education, all things wealth building at an affordable price. Uh, So we've been really successful in terms of bootstrapping that to many million millions of dollars of revenue, hundred fifty thousand students um, over the over the last you know six years or so, and that's great. And I love the impact. I love 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 the community and impact that we've actually made on that particular front. Um, But I still wanted to do something a little bit bigger, right? So instead of talking about, you know, seven figure types of companies, what would what it would be like to own and operate a nine figure type of business, right? Um, and I didn't know how to make companies grow from seven figures to nine figure. Um, and I didn't know how companies are actually funded to make that happen because we bootstrap our business to the point where it is now. Uh, so that's when I decided to make that pivot to make that that's that switch from entrepreneurship to investing to learn how to scale an individual company beyond seven figures and, you know, seeing what type of impact that that can have on the community, but then also from a personal legacy
0: wealth building type of standpoint as well. So let's, let's talk about some of that a little bit, like, because you, you, you've built different businesses, like very difficult to do just in just, you know, once. And I think one of the most difficult things in business is the art of, selling, having clients, finding who your customer base is. Like, can we just talk about how important it is to like understand if you have a demand for what you're offering and how you maybe find the people who are looking for what it is that you want to bring to the market?
1: It's the most important thing in business. <laughs> like, like literally when I talk to people now after. So this is the first time I've, I've actually ever been an employee. So I started my, you know, I started working at, at where I do now at when I was 38, 38 years old, um, and I see things from a different perspective, um, and I get to see a lot of different companies now. I think for Black people, the two most important things that they could do is, one, get ownership in an in assets that are increasing in value, and then, two, learn how to acquire a customer, right? Like those are the two biggest and most important skills from like wealth building standpoint that I think that any black person you know should be you know really be you know pursuing. So customer acquisition is like so key in really understanding your target customer in terms of who your audience is, who your target audience is, and then going deep in terms of what do they believe, what do they care about, who are their role models, what are they thinking, what are their fears, what are their aspirations. Just thinking through all of that to to a point where you become that individual. And it's through that identification and that that discovery you are able to craft offers and things that you know resonate with that particular group. So you can actually sell them something of value. Um, and the process of like that discovery is the most important skill I think in business. I don't care when when what anyone says, you have to learn how to sell customers and deeply understand their needs. Um, to service them and also to, you know, get their money um, for something of value.
0: In your personal experience, what are some of the, I guess, character traits that or or just skills that help do that to the best of your uh, like to do that at, at its highest level, in your opinion? I would say
1: ask good questions, listen, and then learn how to synthesize what you hear. Into something that is actionable, um, because that's where the product development piece actually comes into play. But listening and asking good questions um, is the key to like that discovery process, and also observing too, though, right? So you can ask people good questions, but you can also observe their behaviors, to observe their actions as well. I think I think that's most important.
0: And 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 the other thing you mentioned outside of of customer acquisition was 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 assets. Like when we talk about assets. I'm I'm curious different types of assets that we can invest in but like what are you know especially in today's world we get marketed on crypto and just so many different you know ways to invest your money like what do you think are some core assets as you know that the black community would should be focused on in your opinion
1: Yeah I'm more traditional in that type of way right um so I think about think about a few different things right so well let me take a step back. I created an entire framework called the Black Family Master Plan. Uh, so it was a framework that I created out of a conversation that I was having with my wife. You know, she was asking all these questions about what needed to be done. And she was also a little upset that I was using, like, my skills and my, uh, I guess, asset or my, my skill set of creating frameworks, I was always using that for business, but not necessarily to benefit our personal lives, right? So it's through a lot of that work that I created the Black Family Master Plan, but it's basically broken down into four quadrants, uh, earn, protect, sustain, connect. So earn is you know how do you increase your income and income sources? Protect is how do you go about limiting downside risk in life? Sustain is how do you make life day to day pleasurable and fulfilling? And the connect is how do you build those relationships with those that you care about the most? And in the earn quadrant, uh, I think about a few different things. So for me personally, entrepreneurship is key to wealth creation, wealth generation. Some people might say your job in terms of you know, income that you actually, you know, have by working for someone else. But uh, like my friend Julian Gordon always says, is um, what does he say? An employee is just an entrepreneur with one client. <laughs> so that's how he kind of defines it. Right. Um, but anyway, that's one piece of it. Another piece is real estate in regards to the real estate that you own for your own personal use. I view that as consumption and we kind of do, we both do, but no matter it appreciates in value most of the time. So Mm. there's that aspect of it, but then also multifamily or whatever, renting single family homes, some of that's cash flowing on that perspective. Uh, The third piece is stock market investing. So what types of stocks do you own long-term? But really people forget that owning a stock is really just owning a piece of a large company, right? Um, So it's business, it's business ownership and investing, in large businesses that you own a very, very minuscule piece of that you don't control um, majority of the times, unless you have a billion dollars to invest in whatever company. And then the last uh, piece of it is, uh, I called it micro private equity at the time, but now it's just, I'm thinking about private equity. So are you buying into businesses that you have a smaller companies that you have a more substantial um, ownership stake in? Uh, so that's an area that I care a lot about as well. And I'll be going out making some acquisitions here, hopefully in the next you know, year or so.
0: Okay. Okay, word up. So when we when we talk about like it's it's th- that that framework, can you just say the name? Is it is it somewhere for people to, to access or is it just like in your personal bag of tricks that's not available for people to 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 learn more about? Yeah,
1: so yes and no. Well
0: <laughs>
1: it's on LinkedIn somewhere or Facebook. I always sit up on get around to it and make it an actual asset. I still I don't know what you think. Do you think I should like make that into a community or something around like the Black Family
0: Master Plan or whatever? I think it's a conversation worth 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 having, and I think the value in frameworks is that it gives the guardrails to have a conversation in a constructive way. If you've already, you know, put together, and 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 it sounds like a a it sounds like a comprehensive framework that that's been thought out with, you know, and it's a good discussion piece at least a, a reference point to start those discussions and then you know it's, people are going to have their own point of views but at least it gives like a starting point as to what you can consider for your own situation so i think it is something worth fleshing out even further
1: i know and i always say that and i'm like then the real work begins of actually fleshing it out <laughs> like oh man I got to actually work on this thing, <laughs> but I think that actually might be one of the things that I, I do. But the, the answer is no. There's no place, really. I'll share it with you, though. You can share it with your community. Um, yeah, I'll I'll, be, it, I'll so to look, that man, happen.
0: let's make let, let's 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 we got to we got we to gotta follow that up. We're listeners saying, yeah, we should do that. That's a great idea. The, 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 the framework is people. You know, th- that's one of the things that I think I've really realized here uh, recently in the past couple of years is that, you know, What may come natural to me does not come natural to everyone else. And the way that like I may process ideas or think that something just makes sense, other people doesn't even think to think about it that way at all. To the point earlier about just exposure, letting people know that this is a good route to take, uh, letting people know that these are opportunities that you can access. When we provide that framework earlier in the conversation, I think it just helps the whole, you know, it helps lift everyone up in a way because it gives Even, you know, people who are struggling, who may want to get to that next level, may not be knowing how to, how to literally get from A to B to C, but oh man, here's a framework that didn't Mm -hmm. exist. And now it gives me some things to really think about that are tangible. That I can implement and slowly build toward the next level. Yeah.
1: Okay. Cool. Some of them on my mind seemed that little pushover, uh, like you know, <laughs> give me, give me over, uh, over, over the hump with that. But uh, yeah. So did I even answer the question? Oh, I did answer the
0: question in yeah, regards you did. to just yeah. you did, you did, and and I appreciate you answering that. And and, and the other thing I want to talk about, like before uh, we, we 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 run out of time, is keeping it business. The work that you do now is and and correct me if I'm if I'm off on this, but from from what I understand, you have a mission to help diversify supply chains. I wanna just first just especially you, you talked about COVID, how that sort of impacted your decision to, to change some things. That term supply chain was definitely a hot topic during the COVID time period because everything was impacted across all industries and it was supply chain, supply chain, supply chain, right? So before we even talk about like diversifying, like for the listeners, like if we could break that down as simple as can be like, what is a supply chain when we talk about this concept of supply chain what do we mean by that
1: what are the what is the chain or the flow of resources necessary to produce a good or service right that a company needs to, to produce that good or service so you have this podcast and we're on streamyard right now uh, so streamyard is a part of your supply chain to produce this podcast that we're on right um but you know companies of all sizes or every company has some type of supply chain um, with their product and service and the large companies your fortune 500s or fortune 100s are spending billions and billions of dollars uh, to produce the products uh, and services that are making them into those fortune 100 you know, those fortune 500 types of companies and uh, my thought process and what i advocate for is for more diverse companies more black businesses to be a part of those supply chains um, because the more that we can be suppliers of these large corporations um, and government agencies, the more wealth that's brought into our community, because the only way to succeed in the business long term is to uh, create a customer, to have a customer. Uh, so the more that we can get these large corporations and businesses to be businesses to be our customers, um, the better off you know, Black communities will be
0: nationwide. Let me just offer some pushback here because I hear what you're saying from a black community standpoint, but if I'm a Fortune 100, why does diversifying the supply chain have any benefit to my bottom line?
1: A couple of reasons. Right. So first, especially talking about the, the browning and blacking of you know the United States, companies are facing an existential crisis in terms of demographic change. Right. So having a supply base that doesn't match your demographic change, you're missing a huge opportunity to actually serve those same suppliers and those communities as actual customers. So when you are thinking about it from that perspective, a lot of businesses, especially the Latino communities, they are looking at that you know wholeheartedly and in, in full force in regards to how yeah, we can promote. You know, Latin com- Latinx company right here, and put that in our marketing campaigns, and using that as a way to say, "Look, we support your community. Buy from us. We're Procter and Gamble or Johnson Johnson or whoever that actually may be." Uh, but then also, it comes down to a question of business diversity. Some of those white suppliers and those other companies that you use for thirty years or whatever, they kind of suck, all right? And you need to open up the doors and opportunities to um, other types of you no know, businesses and. In, in new ways of doing things and new, you know, strategies of doing things. Um, you need to open that up so you can find the best suppliers so you can make the best products possible for for your business as
0: well. Yeah, because I, and and, I, and i'm and i'm curious is does, does the term cuz the, the term DEI, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, does what you the, the work that you're speaking about as relates to spli- to supply chains does that fit under that umbrella or are we talking something completely different here?
1: It should fit under, under underneath that umbrella, but it really does. So when you have specific like DEI um conversations a lot of times that falls under in terms of hiring and employment and what does it mean to you know, I guess your employees are supplying your business with like the labor necessary for you to produce that product and service. But that's also that's usually or oftentimes different sector than actual companies that have some raw good that you actually need to you know make your your particular um, uh, make your uh, make your your product or service. I think the umbrella that it falls underneath more so is ESG, right? So in, environmental, social, governance mm-hmm. of an organization. And ESG has become, you know, uh, controversial in many circles, but something that you know is definitely not going away
0: uh, with these corporations moving forward. A thousand percent, I would agree with that. So, so okay, if if that's the case, like like okay, how how do you bridge? I guess this is what you're working on, but like how do you bridge that gap in in like helping connect these multi-billion-dollar multinational enterprises to more local? Uh, smaller, diverse suppliers who can offer them something to benefit their bottom line as a business. Like if I am a local entrepreneur and I produce a good or service that one of these major companies or the government can benefit from, like how do I get their attention uh, to to take advantage of those opportunities?
1: And therein lies the question, right? And I think a big problem in terms of making that happen is many of these small businesses that you're talking about are too small to do business with these corporations and government agencies, right? Mm. Because you might be able to service 12 different restaurants. Um, let's say it's you know, a restaurant chain or something, but you know McDonald's needs you to supply a thousand <laughs> restaurants. So it's building up enough capacity in these, these companies, in these businesses, um, these minority, you know, these black owned businesses um, where they have the actual capacity to fulfill a larger, a larger scale contract. So that is what we've uncovered to be the biggest issue um, with adding more diverse businesses to, to supply chain. It's not that companies don't want to do business with black owned companies or minority businesses or however you want to define it. It's a lot of times the businesses are too small
0: to do business with the Fortune 500s. Wow interesting interesting too small like now i i guess this is the, it's so many different examples because when you talk about supply chains you talk about verticals you talk about all the things that go into a business it's so many different goods and services that can be a part of a supply chain especially at this level of 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 enterprise but i guess like with that said, what are maybe some key, like, pathways that you've seen maybe have the least amount of friction in, like, getting there to that relationship? Like, if, if I am an aspiring business person trying to come up with the game plan on what my next product or service might be and and knowing that I'm going after this market of, Fortune 100, 500 companies to do business with them long, ter- long term. In your experience, what are some of those key goods and services that you think are going to be really at the forefront here in the near future or currently?
1: Well, you know, that's a simple yet slightly unexplored question that we are actively talking about often right now. Mm-hmm. I would first say there's a mindset shift that needs to be happening. To serve, if you want to be an entrepreneur, to serve a Fortune 500 company now, Chances are you won't be starting that company from scratch, right? Um, you will be acquiring some existing business and then growing and scaling, growing and scaling from there. Not to say it's not possible. Mm. Um, on the federal government side, there are programs like eight A, you know, eight A certification, those types of things that make it easier to get your foot in the door to do business. But with like corporations, um, some have programs to kind of help scale you up. If you already have, let's say, a million dollars in revenue or seven hundred fifty thousand dollars revenue. But if you were like zero, um, that's very, very difficult to do. So we've been focused on, you know, how are we identifying those larger? How are we identifying the larger small businesses who are out here and putting fuel on the fire to help them be able to increase their capacity more? So if you're new um, to the entire space, I would just really look at you know, what can even look at what corporations are buying? You can, but it's not public information. Right. But we're looking to make that more public. We're looking to do that, you know, that specific type of research to really understand what is they're buying. A lot of times it's in things that have low margin types of businesses. And that's something that we're really, really, really trying to change. Right. So it might be construction or janitorial services or whatever. Um, but the professional and technical types of things that have high margins are still going to the good old boy network um, or even good old boy. But then also the tried and true that they're comfortable with already actually using. Right. Um, so it's really breaking into those other things um, that that is going to be key. And that really comes down to relationships um, and being able to um, navigate and, and leverage those relationships for for company growth.
0: Mm, interesting. That is, you know, this is, this is, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's important work, but it's also very, like, just interesting to think about because, you know, like, like we've been saying, these, these big companies, they, they do business with a lot of vendors uh, throughout the different departments, they have a lot Mm -hmm. of different needs, and you know, going through procurement with some of these companies, like negotiate, like, like they are trying to squeeze every bit of value out of every exchange with the vendor that they possibly can. So I like to think that if they, if they have opportunities to get something that is of the same quality, if not better for a lower price, then you, you know, you have a, you have a fighting chance. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like you said, you're, you're looking for bigger companies that, that already have an established footprint, uh, but can't get to the next level. Similar to, you know, I'm, I'm sort of tying it up, similar to yourself as an entrepreneur, right? You said that you got to a certain level, but it was like, how do you go from a seven figure to a nine figure, that's scalability, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess I guess my question is like, what do you think is missing typically from a business prevents it from going from seven to nine figures. Like I know it's not one thing, but could you highlight a couple of just key items that you really think need to be in place when you have like something really good, but you want to make it? Really there's only two things that you that you need.
1: Well maybe three. Uh customers. That's the number one most important. For <laughs> <bro>. real. All right. <laughs> if you have enough customers out here and you know how to go about getting them, then you can scale you can scale yourself that's the most important piece of business is like acquiring that customer i would say after that access to capital sources and knowing how to structure the deals um, necessary to get you the capital um, to grow your company right so you have bank loans but then you have different types of equity financing you have blended types of stuff there's just a lot of different ways that you can go out and get and get this money and being prepared to actually use that capital once you actually get it um but then that's another thing is once you get the money you have to use it effectively. So do you know what you're going to use that capital for? Is it going to be just straight marketing, customer acquisition? Is it going to be scaling your operations in terms of production, hiring people, getting new machinery or whatever it is? Right. Um, so that type of know how um, also you know, limits limits company because there's mindset, sh- mindset shifts that need to occur uh, when you when you continue to scale. And that's scaling every stage, every stage, you know having a $50,000 company is different than having a $1 million company, having a $1 million company is different than having a $10 million company, having a $10 million company is different than having a $100 billion company. Um no stage is harder than the next stage, right? But you just have to learn how, you know, to, to navigate and get through each stage of the process.
0: That is very true. It's just a different just say different toilet, but it's just it's just a different Same nature, but it's just a different beast that you're sort of dealing with. And, you know, from at least at least from my perspective, when we talk, we talk business, the market, like understanding your customer base. Like I understand the importance of that. Oftentimes as entrepreneurs, the order of operations in which you do things can be like why you don't. Get to the next level because you Mm -hmm. put the cart before the horse, if you will. And so to your point about like marketing, customer acquisition, in my experience, I've noticed oftentimes sometimes entrepreneurs like there's an imbalance of quality marketing, but then not being able to meet the needs of what you just marketed to for example Mm -hmm. so you have like this great marketing campaign and you got everybody's attention you have the customers but then you can't fulfill the needs of those customers and then you might lose them over time From, from from your point of view when you're when you're trying to go to market and figure out like how to how to take full advantage like what do you think is like from an order operation standpoint? Do you feel like it's more important to invest in that marketing acquisition, even if, say, maybe you don't have the, the full thing ready to deliver? Like, I guess I'm curious, like, we see it so often, GoFundMe's crowdfunding for a product that's under design, still getting developed. The pro- All you see is a prototype, and then they got all these orders, and then you you can't meet the orders because it never gets fulfilled. Like from a business standpoint, do you feel like that sort of approach is beneficial or like, you know, a a smart thing to do, or are you better off like doing the opposite and really making sure from an operations standpoint, you have all that locked down and then go try to capture as big a market possible. Like how do you balance, balance both of those?
1: I'm always a fan of getting the customer before you actually have the product. Mm. Right. And the reason is, if you build a product without the customer, you don't know if customers are actually going to come and purchase the product. And then also you lose the opportunity to make your product better because you're not getting that real life, uh, real time feedback in regards to like, all right, we need to change this. We need to change that because customers are telling us uh, that that's what they actually want to see and you wouldn't know that unless you actually talk to the customers um, and put something in front of them that like yeah, this is actually what's going to look like what's going to you know what's going to be what's going to do and then them giving you feedback in regards to you know what what has been you know offered in front of them. Yeah, so the worst thing in the world is to like build something that nobody actually wants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So you really need to assess demand and make sure that people actually want something. Um, and prototype that and go from there versus actually building something. Because uh, it's not you know what's that movie Field of Dreams from the nineteen ninety? If they build it, it's not necessarily they'll be coming you know for you, right? Mm-hmm. And coming to you. So I would say build it. I would say you know see if they come and see what people want and then actually build off uh, off their
0: specifications. Jules, man. And so we're going to we're going to start to close out. But like, I'm curious, like in, in doing this, this, this sort of work, working with other entrepreneurs to help them scale, what have been some of the the early lessons that you've you've picked up in this sort of role?
1: Uh, so that's only one piece of my role uh, right now. Eventually, it will be like the the largest piece mm-hmm. right now. I work for uh, an, a VC fund. I'm out of uh, out of Oklahoma, out of Tulsa called uh, so we are the arm uh, of a large foundation here called the, um, and we're deploying a hundred million dollars, um, in basically the state of Oklahoma, uh, to recruit, uh, the best talent in terms of founders to the city in hopes that they grow the best companies possible and provide jobs and employment for the residents here as well. And also make you know, us more money in terms of return on investment type of standpoint. So You know, what I've learned so far with working with the companies is that there are a lot of passionate people out here who are willing to put that hustle, willing to put that grind into making the business work. I think a lot of founders don't know how to sell and tell their story very well in a deeper type of format. Right. So some get to the point where they can do a two or three minute pitch about their business. But if you ask them like deeper questions in terms of you know the product market fit and pushback and all those other types of things. If you really want to have a deep understanding about a subject, they struggle, they fumble with, you know, actually answering those types of those types of questions, those types. I would say, you know, for potential entrepreneurs is to deeply and in, in really understand your business and also the core value proposition um, of your company uh, so that you can sell it to potential customers and also potential employees and, and investors as well. And that that that's missing from a lot of entrepreneurs, especially when they first get started. When we
0: say core value prop, can you just... Explain what you mean by that.
1: So your value proposition. So why am I going to choose this business to solve my particular product, especially over competitors or substitutes? Uh, that could do
0: the same thing um, and, and solve my key and, and, my, and solve my same problem it is so key it is so key and with without uh, you know like you said it, it all goes back to that to that access to information you know it you, you don't know what you don't know when you're out here on the grind and you have that willingness to put in the work but you're missing some of that key information man it can it can really like almost make you resent the work you're doing it, it can sometimes the ignorance that, that that liability of ignorance that exists when doing business like it can cost you in the long run or in the short term So having this information i think is going to be so valuable for entrepreneurs listening you know you got to work on your pitch like everybody's got to know how to sell and if you've got a business and you don't understand some of these core elements that he's speaking about can they learn this at the black business school like i'm curious like does is it yeah some of the things that you guys help help the community uh Learn more about
1: yeah exactly. So we have fun, three fundamental pillars of wealth building for us: entrepreneurship, stock market investing, and real estate investing. Um, and when it comes to the entrepreneurship piece, that's core, core and fundamental is learning how to sell. But selling isn't the thing in the activities that people often associated with it and think that it is. Um, a lot of the time it deep it, it is understanding customer problems, um, the impact of those problems, and figuring out how to explain how your solution fixes those problems that they're having in their, own, their own individual lives. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the basis of selling. A lot of that comes through listening, you know, really understanding,
0: you know, what people are, 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 are going through. Mm-hmm. Got to have a, you had, or not say so you got to, but when we talk sales, it's definitely more of a consultative approach, understanding mm-hmm. the needs of your audience and making sure you speak to how you can address those needs and tying, tying and connecting the dots is, is definitely the way to go. We, we, We've gone over your background. You shared some of your your, your, your stories as it relates to your entrepreneurial efforts, Some of what you're doing now with the with the community. You know, are there, are there any last like closing words that you want to like leave the audience with? Whether it be to you know, follow, you know, we'll, we'll keep them posted on the framework. We'll have to circle back and figure out how we can work together even to maybe even have another episode and talk through the framework even more. Maybe we record it. Oh, and, that'd be fun. Yeah. And let, yeah. let people kind of hear that. But anything that you want to leave the people with, any final words or anything you want to let them know you got going on.
1: I really just appreciate the opportunity to, you know, speak with you and your audience in regards to you know what we're doing here in Tulsa and around supplier diversity. Yeah, really about family and life and um, your overarching motto uh, and definitely everything else too. I, I appreciate <laughs> that. You gotta stay focused. Um but uh and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today.
0: Ma'am I I appreciate you joining. In case y'all are, are are wondering or wanting to learn more, I know uh, Lawrence. Do you do you still do the uh, newsletter on LinkedIn as well? The uh, man or- with
1: these kids, I had to sh- I had to shut something down, <laughs> and that was the awesome thing. So I might be doing a Black Business Monthly or something like that. We'll, we'll you know we'll, we'll we'll see on that particular front. But follow me on LinkedIn. Um, find me on LinkedIn, Lawrence Watkins. Uh, I think it's uh, or handle Lawrence L A W R E N C E. M as in Matthew uh, Watkins so you find me the Black Business School
0: and I'll make sure on the follow-up, when we uh, put out the uh, edited episode, I'll put the links for the Black Business School, put the links in to make sure that people can connect with you. For everybody listening, whether you're here on Instagram, here on the YouTube, make your way over to YouTube, hit that subscribe button if you're listening. This is the G Podcast, where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom, and our future, and Everything else. Shout out to Lawrence Watkins for joining us. We are out of here. No Make sure you hit that subscribe button. This is the G Pod.